Welcome to Garden Views, interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome everyone into Garden Views. Thank you for joining us. And this week we have an interesting show with one of the lawyers in my office, one of the partners. Uh, and a colleague at Dunlop, Bennett, and Ludwig. So before I go further, I should say this show is not for legal advice. It's for informative, informational, and educational purposes. And if you have any legal questions, you should certainly contact your own lawyer or contact the firm as individual needs may differ. Um, I'm talking with Chip Murr, his Formal name is Lawrence L. Murr Jr., and he's worked with cybersecurity issues for the past decade. He has professional experience with cybersecurity and related issues as a White House official, a strategic consultant, a computer crime prosecutor, and an adjunct professor of cybercrime law at two prestigious law schools. That multidisciplinary background translates to the ability to use various perspectives to find the smartest, most comprehensive approaches to addressing your needs uh, to assess the cybersecurity risk and mitigation recommendations, needs, etc. In 2017, Mr. Murr served as the general counsel and acting chief of staff to the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. Uh, he used his background in cybercrime to work on technological disruption to the trafficking of illicit narcotics and precursor components into the United States. Thank you, sir, for doing that. Um, also, intelligence opportunities, uh, including the use of blockchain to track drug diversions and the use of cryptocurrency for the transfer of illicit proceeds from narcotics trend transactions. For those who are curious, I have two shows on cryptocurrency on Garden Views. Uh, both with the same gentleman who's an adjunct professor. One was the original and the second was sort of a follow-up when the bottom started falling out, but before the FTX. Um, so you may want to check out those shows if you're curious about cryptocurrency, and maybe we'll touch on that during the show. Um, Chip also worked on governance matters, such as setting the office budget, drafting the reauthorization legislation, developing theories of legal liability for drug manufacturers, participating in bilateral negotiations with foreign nations, and working on transnational criminal organization-related strategic planning. Spent six years as an adjunct professor of law at Washington Lee University School of Law. He taught a seminar there on cybercrime. Uh, while he was there, he authored two law review articles on geopolitical issues in cybercrime and de delivered lectures on the constitutionality of cybercrime legislation. I'm telling you, I need to put you in touch with Mike Hilliard from the Red Line Podcast. I think he'd love you. Um, right. While teaching, Mr. Muir uh, consulted to the Commonwealth of Virginia, that's a state, folks, and authored the Comprehensive Cybersecurity Strategy for the Commonwealth of Virginia. For those in the U.S., some states are called commonwealths, others are called states. One day someone will explain to me the exact difference, um, but just know that the Commonwealth of Virginia is the state of Virginia for anybody out there, not from the U.S., or from the U.S. who is curious. Chip also spent four and a half years as an assistant attorney general of Virginia in the computer crime section. He was cross-designated as a special assistant United States attorney in both the eastern and western districts of Virginia. While serving in that capacity, he prosecuted cybercrime and child exploitation cases involving computer networks. He 
We also work with the Governor's Homeland Security Working Group. He's currently a partner at the law firm of Dunlop, Bennett and Ludwood, PLLC, where I am also uh, employed. Technically, I guess he's my boss. So thanks, boss. Um, where his practice involves government contracts, corporate matters, and cybersecurity advisory work. That is a mouthful, but I didn't want to give short shrift to any of it because that's a very impressive resume. And we're very thankful that you took the time out uh, to be on the show, especially since it's technically after working hours when we're recording. So thank you so much, Chip. Thanks for coming on. Um, and if I left anything out or there's anything you want to embellish on, please feel free. Well, Jeff, thanks for having me. I hope uh, I hope that I can deliver the one thing that was missing is that it should be informational, educational, and entertaining. So hopefully I can you know somehow develop a personality for the next hour. <laughs> and uh, we'll see if we can make this enjoyable to your listeners. Uh, the one thing that I, I've really been working on is my uh, cybersecurity company. Uh, we've developed some interesting proprietary platforms for uh, managing cybersecurity risk and compliance. And uh, I've got a uh, company, but also a, I own a joint venture with a uh, company that was uh, derived from an aerospace company that did the secure communications for satellites. So uh, so I, I had my hands full with, with work, uh, but between you know being a tech geek and a legal geek, I would say that I'm maybe the most least interesting person that you'll ever interview on this podcast. But, you know, hopefully we'll have a good time. Well, you know, if the lack, if there's lack of interest, at least you keep yourself very busy. So there's no lack of things to chat about. And uh, you mentioned satellites. And as we were talking in pre-production, one of the main focuses of the legal aspect of the show has been trying to figure out where the law of space is going to go. And we, um, if you've looked at the catalog, you'd say we, we did the law of the sea and we talked to an immigration attorney and we even had a retired two-star Air Force general who ran Dulles Airport uh, for uh, over a decade and, and air traffic control. So we're trying to get like a hit on all and see, you know, uh, uh, if we can extrapolate. So satellites and technology is certainly, uh, you know, major concerns. I mean, most every sort of communication is going to have to be routed through some type of cyber for, well, obvious reasons. It's not going to be uh, telephones. No telephone lines or, or cyber, uh, fiber optic cables being laid in uh, nothing. Um, so I think probably the easiest place to start is maybe explain what cybersecurity is, because it's probably a, a broad term that everyone thinks they know what it means, but you know maybe they don't know what it means and how it applies to individuals, businesses, governments, and then and the different contexts and you know, obviously feel free to break it down as best you can or as, you know, slowly, or if you feel that one section, you know, needs, we need to put a pin in, in it and come back to it, that's fine too. There, there are, that's a good question. It's a really good introductory question. The, uh, there are a few ways to define cybersecurity and you can't get away with uh, saying, you know, it, I'll know it when I see it type of situation. It, it can be something where you can look at what composes cybersecurity or you can break down sort of the elements of cybersecurity. So when you think about what composes it, you should think about really the information that you possess that is either internally generated or belongs to others that you're holding. That is the essence of what you want to secure on top of the networks and the lines of communications that allow 
that data to be shared. Um, and so you can look at cybersecurity as the protection of digitally stored information and digital communications that allow confidentiality of data and communications, the integrity of the data that it's not being manipulated from how it was stored to how it's next accessed. Um, so it has integrity and availability. That is the people that need to have access to the information, have the information while people that shouldn't have access to the information do not. So CIA is the acronym that the cybersecurity industry has come up with for confidentiality integrity and availability to sort of identify what cybersecurity is. You can look at it as the component parts, or you can break it down into cybersecurity is really the prevention of three different types of things. Cybercrime, which is using communications technology to uh, defraud, take the property of others. Uh, cyber espionage, which would be the illegal access of the proprietary technology and information that companies possess or cyber warfare, which would be the disruption of communication lines or, um, you know, actually using, uh, technological means to disrupt the, uh, the good functioning of a service, you know, such as like shutting down water distribution in a civilian community. So you can also look at it as preventing the tools of communications uh, from being used to cause disruptions to individuals, uh, governments, and uh, businesses or non-government entities, such as municipal water treatment plants. Um, or nuclear power plants. Nuclear power plants would be a, a good one. Um, I was on a panel on November 4th with one of the general counsels for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I've actually spoken about cybersecurity with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And uh, the thing that grabbed me about my discussions with them is that you could fairly infer that their default to anything is if they sense anything's amiss, we're just going to shut it down. <laughs> and that makes a lot of sense because of how catastrophic a nuclear accident can become. Sure. But it also tells you that anyone that's relying upon power being generated from that really has an investment in good cybersecurity in the nuclear industry because it's a draconian uh, outcome if there is a reason that the NRC decides to shut something down. I am sure. And I'm sure it's not just nuclear. Every power grid and airport, uh, anything you can think of is subject to it because... Everything runs on computer now. Mm -hmm. There was an interesting thing. It's, a, it's about a decade old now, maybe a little bit older. It's called Operation Aurora. And uh, government hackers, they were white hat hackers, you know, people that were trying to do something wrong, but with permission, right. were basically able to get a machine to blow up um, by hacking into something and causing physical damage. And that was to, I think it was like an electrical grid in Idaho or something like that. Uh, but it was, of course, a, a managed situation. But that was kind of one of the many eye-opening, um, one of, one of the one, many eye-opening, uh, events that said this is going to become a problem that we really need to protect people from because they have really no way to protect themselves. You know, they right. are, they are the collateral damage if something happens. So I have 
a million questions. I have a feeling you'll probably get to some of them, but, and I think you just touched on one. So I'm going to go in the reverse direction. So there's different stakeholders in this, obviously, who each have a role in it. And for now, I'm going to go away from the obvious bad actors. So I imagine there's a role for private industry to play, uh, meaning businesses, services, banks, et cetera. There's probably a role for manufacturers of electronics and communication networks. There might be a role for individuals, you and I, as to what we do. And then there's obviously a government role. So if you could take them one by one and say what those roles uh, are, and if I'm leaving out any stakeholders that, that need to be in there as well. I, I'd be happy to do that. You'll probably have to prompt me a little bit to go from category to category, but you've done an excellent job of laying out what uh, we used to talk about as a shared responsibility, that if any one entity tries to take control of everything, then nothing will go right. right. Um, if everyone just limits themselves to what they have responsibility for, you can make the overall hygiene of the environment so much better. So let's talk with the first responsibility that causes people to have to have the shared responsibility is actually the third-party storage data, right? Mm -hmm. um, every transaction that you make is going to be recorded with your bank and with someone else's bank. Okay, and that's going to include, you know, the payment card information used and it could possibly transfer to, you know, who the person is. So once you start entrusting your data with other people, everyone that is going to receive third party information really needs to undertake a rigorous analysis of what it is that they're receiving from people that they have to protect and where that sharing being shared out. And that in, in cybersecurity is effectively describing what's called a boundary which is that I can trace where my network is, I can trace where the desired seepages out of my network are for the you know need to do business. So if you look at every one of those entities that you've talked about have that third party data. So when you talk about banks, you really need to protect all the identifying information about the customer, plus make sure that whenever you're housing that information, uh, offsite with a third party that that company has flow down on provisions from the bank saying, this is the information that you're going to have to keep, uh, private and you're going to have to notify us. Of it. And one of the things that I've really been stressing in my legal advice is the people that are knowingly sharing out the data need to start getting more aggressive in the contracts that they make with these third parties. They need to start uh, elucidating in contracts the standards, the cybersecurity framework standards, or the cybersecurity controls that they demand must be implemented in the contracts to help protect that data. They need to, uh, they being the people sharing out the information, need to be able to see the cybersecurity control implementation status of those vendors to be able to prioritize cybersecurity in the contracts. Okay, now I'm not trying to get off topic, but it's a switch over to where do the lawyers come into this? Sure. Because the lawyers, you know, as business owners, um, 
they're receiving payment card information. They're receiving social security numbers of their clients and such. But where lawyers can really factor into this is in writing the stronger contracts that basically push down from the buyers to the vendors the responsibility to have cybersecurity assessments to be able to communicate their cybersecurity posture to the to the potential customers and to be able to enable for the buyers to be able to enable some form of active or passive monitoring with the people, the companies that they're entrusting information out to. Okay. I want to make sure that you're continuing to show compliance with this contract. That if there are any cyber events, you're on top of it. You're sharing that information with us. You're responding to it. And that, you know, cybersecurity insurance is being carried in the event that there's an accident. So not to get all over the place, but cybersecurity insurance is sort of like the, the lawyer's role as well. That they're a third party that really is in a position to start pushing good hygiene into the community because the cybersecurity insurance company should be able to start looking under the hood at their insurer to say, are we really certain that our insureds are implementing all of these controls? Are we on top of it? When they make changes in the way that they're doing security, are we aware of it? Uh, and are we setting our premiums in, in accordance with the actual security that we're seeing. Okay, so now in this answer, we've covered that people need to to be cognizant of what data they're sharing out to whom they're sharing. And they need to start taking responsible steps that are very simple uh, in their lives. They need to get multi-factor, two-factor authentication on any device that they can. They need to you know, get the stronger passwords. These small steps don't seem to do a whole lot by themselves, but cyber criminals are always looking for the low-hanging fruit. So the person whose password is password is a whole lot easier to hack than the person that you know has a variety of capital and lowercase letters and numbers and special characters, right. and then two-factor authentication. So you know, you know, it's like the joke about you know two guys being chased by a bear. The one guy doesn't have to be so fast; he just has to be faster than the other. Right. Okay. You don't have to be the most secure button down person in the world. You just have to make sure that the other people are being less prepared than you. And they'll probably be the victims first. But if everyone just elevates a little bit more, you're actually creating a much stronger environment as a whole. Unless so, somebody's targeting you specifically. And that's, right. that's unlikely to be you or me, but it might be, say, Target or the, the Veterans Administration. Yeah, absolutely. And Target, of course, is it, you probably knew exactly why you picked that one. Yes. They had a $203 million hack. And that was because uh, there, a company near where I grew up uh, in, in Pittsburgh uh, was an HVAC. Uh, you know, they, they just did HVAC for the Target stores. And they had some information about the Target network and cyber criminals uh, penetrated the HVAC company. But they were able to basically get the keys into the Target networks. And that led to the uh, hacking of the point of sale devices, which led to all the, um, you know, the, the credit card numbers and the debit card numbers all being picked up from the point of sale devices. That is terrifying that a hacker somehow knew or was given information that, that a particular HVAC contractor was working for Target and even considered 
that if they hacked the HVAC, that somehow they could get the key into target system. Absolutely. Uh, you, you know, even before that, uh, you know, there was a company that made the uh, basically the two-factor authentication uh, dongles that you would plug into your computer and you get the uh, you get the the number to type in, right? Right. Well, that was hacked, and because that was hacked, they the cyber thieves were able to basically derail one of the Air Force fighter planes. Okay, costing billions of dollars in damages. To the government, but how was that RSA token actually hacked? Because there was an administrative assistant working for one of the companies that received some malware about like a promotion plan or something at work or new job opportunities at work, and she clicked on the malware, and that led into the token that led into the devices that eventually led into disrupting the fighter jet plans. I mean, so you, you're really looking at. There's no bit of security that is too small to not lead to catastrophic damages down the road. And so that's where it really goes back to the question, yes, it's a shared responsibility. If everyone just improves their hygiene a little bit more, everybody's hygiene might wind up getting stronger. Wow. I'm, I'm terrified at, at the, the ease or the, the multiple permutations. Uh, it can be, I mean, someplace like, I mean, Anybody who's familiar with the government, I mean, first of all, the government's enormous and it's full of people. Um, and there's multiple levels of the government and there's some information, information sharing between certain agencies and state and government agencies and state and local agencies. But beyond that, all those points of potential access, risk points, whatever, I'm sure you have an industry phrase for them. But beyond that, there the federal government, and I'm sure states have the same, are littered by contractors. Uh, a lot of them are former federal workers, uh, outside companies, you name it. But there's, you know, private contractors all the time, and you know, I'm sure they sign contracts saying, "Well, we're going to do this, that, and the other thing." And but do they? You know, do they all do this, that, and the other thing? Yeah, so the answer to that is no, they absolutely do not do this, that, and the other thing. Um, so uh, the federal government is, of course, starting to wisely use the power of contract to enforce cybersecurity hygiene. And that is, that's fair, right? And these, so these are not just burdensome regulations that the government has passed down on, from on high. This is the government as a customer saying, we're going to be sharing data that we have as proprietary information with you as the contractors, you have an obligation to protect it, okay? And that makes a lot of sense. And so the first rule that came out was that the FARS, I think it's uh, either 204-252-7012 or 252-204-7012. It's always the exact opposite of what I say next, right? It's like when you plug in the USB drive, you always put it on the wrong side first. But 7012 came out and that was, intended to put the NIST 800-171 framework into the defense industrial base. And what the NIST 800-171 framework is, it's a set of 14 control families that have a total of 110 specific controls that the government says you should implement in order to protect our confident or our class confidential unclassified information. Okay. And that is being discarded because that the program in general is being discarded because almost no one was doing 
Now, why was almost no one doing it? Well, first, it was because it was prohibitively expensive to do this. The second thing is that the government understanding that it was prohibitively expensive allowed people to submit a document called a public. That's how, that stands for plans, plans of action and milestones. Okay, so you, you say, we are going to install multi-factor authentication on our systems. And then you say the action steps or the milestones that you have to hit. We have to find a provider. We have to get our employees to download the authenticator onto their devices, whatever. And what was happening is that contractors were submitting this POAM under the honor system of, of course, we're going to implement this. And then, of course, if you get away with just saying you're going to implement it, but not have to spend any money on implementing it, what were contractors doing? Not quite implementing it. Right. So they had massive holes in the defense industrial base, mostly with the small companies that really the margins are tight. And, you know, people are raising their families off these companies and I could spend a lot of money on cybersecurity or I could make my mortgage payments right. type of stuff. And so, again, just like the Target example or just like the RSA example, you could get the big stuff if you just hacked into the uh, small contractors at the bottom. And of course, the government wants to use small businesses. They have a lot of different small business set-aside mechanisms. So as the government's pushing business to these smaller companies, they're also pushing information to less secure companies. So a few years back, uh, the government decided that 7012 just didn't have enough teeth to it. So they wanted to create the, the CMMC, the cybersecurity maturity model. And, um, that was, that, that has been years in the making. They've had multiple different frameworks come out. Uh, now what the government is effectively doing is that they have created three new regulations, 7019, which basically lays out, this is what a qualified assessment is. This is now the stronger version of what 7012 was intended to be. 7020, which talks about the rights of the contractors and the higher level of the um, assessments that have to be performed. And then 7021 is a placeholder for when the CMMC program is adopted. I'm going to stop talking and see if you want me to keep going or if you want to ask a follow-up question because this this part of the answer could get a little bit deep. I'm not sure if it's a follow-up question. It, it seems like it's more of a comment, but maybe after I say it, you can turn it into uh, something that's answerable. Um, but it just seems to me that with this, which I mean, it it sounds absolutely necessary. And, and you're in one of those, you know, no win situations where, you know, you don't, you don't want to look like you're only giving the big companies all the work because everyone will say corruption, corruption, corruption. It's not the lowest bidder, government waste, but they're the only ones who, you know, will invest early on and get, get the, you know, the, the best companies to do it. But the other issue I, I feel is like, the contract managers or the project manager, whoever it is that works in the government agencies dealing, overseeing these contracts, all of a sudden, if they're not already, they need to become cybersecurity experts themselves, which sounds like a lot of training and conferences and other fees. And the only way to not have, you know, add a hundred thousand more cyber, you know, office of the inspector general staff or whatever in, in government agencies to police this is an algorithm. You know, like a like a customs kind of program, which is yet another cyber system that's going to have access to everything, and and it's almost like this 
reverse Russian nesting doll situation of problems and solutions that it, it, it sounds like it's a almost infinity to me. So, um, should I lose sleep over this? Uh, am I too old and I'm going to die before this is a real problem for me? Um, am I overstating things? How, how, how do you, how do you chip your, uh, tell your clients to feel better about this? I, I don't think that you're overstating things. Uh, you know, one of the things is that you can have the, the tools that sort of use open source technology and, and look at the open networks and start probing to see, you know, which ports are vulnerable and start getting a, a decent sense through non-invasive traffic, you know, nothing that would violate the fourth of which companies are actually locking down their systems and doing what they say. The problem with being too robust at that is that someone is going to be having a treasure trove of every company and every vulnerability at every company that is basically like a, a map to who should I hack first and what can I get and how do I do it? And so, you know, like, you, again, like you want to be so robust but if you're too robust, you're going to start finding a lot of stuff that, that you don't want to find. That goes back to your earlier question about the shared responsibility, that you want someone to take the incentive. What's right is to actually build out my cybersecurity program. I want to be a trusted vendor. Government reward me for being proactive enough to do this rather than just setting up something that basically allows me to skate by with as little money spent is possible. Uh, and I think that the government's really going to have to figure out a way to offset the cost of this if they actually want to have teeth, because otherwise it's coming out of profit margins. I'd say profit margins in government contractors, usually 10% is a pretty good number, 15% is like when you're running a really good ship. And then it's going to take a huge bite out of those margins for companies if they're not getting the offset. Yeah, technology is uh, expensive. I mean... In, in my prior life, I, I worked for uh, a law firm and actually I was a partner there and we had pressure from, it was a legal services company. I'm not going to say who it was, but even if I did, it's a good thing on their part that they were very serious about FACTA and they wanted us to have, take certain precautions and that was expensive. We also had, uh, we represented banks and institutional creditors and they wanted us to even, you know, for, you know, they were interested in protecting all the data, even of their debtors there, because their, all of their debtors were also their customers and they were obligated to protect it anyway. So everywhere you go, your clients were outsourcing it to you to do the protections. And, and then the court system said it's on the lawyers to redact the pleadings and the documents, the evidence, the paper evidence that there was going to be put in your exhibits or your, or your motions for default judgments or summary judgment or whatever it was. So you had to go through and redact all the personal data information on files of the, you know, the, basically people who generally defaulted or companies that defaulted. So, you know, you, it, you know, everything was passed on to the lawyers. So, you know, whoa, 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 no one cares about us. But, you know, I, it definitely cut in. You had to, you know, take time and you had to have staff and you had to train them and you had to buy software and hardware. And, and you know, you had to step up your in, internal IT people and, and, and make sure that your external IT people were capable as well. Um, and this, this, and this was just for one law firm, um, you know, and 
this is the whole government, the whole world. <laughs> uh, it's, it's uh, you know, it's sort of making my head spin a little. Yeah, absolutely. And so you're looking at a defense industrial base that probably has between 300 and 350,000 companies in it. Uh, and of those, you know, what percentage of them are basically retired military personnel opening up a shop out of their house? Well, you know, maybe they're just small contractors, but they probably have a contracting purpose. They have a specific subject matter expertise mm -hmm. that they consult on. Well, you know, they're working off their Dell laptop and, you know, their upstairs bedroom, you know, how, how do they even know how to have a robust cybersecurity, uh, you know, portfolio? And they, they don't even know what they need to know for this. So, you know, the, the CMMC has been created so that the government can more appropriately uh, level out which companies need what levels of security. So they have created a regime of level one, level two, level three, where level one is basically, I think it's 15 or 17 controls that say things like passwords are on computers, you know, things that are almost impossible to get wrong. Right. And those those things are really geared towards the defense contractors. They're not going to be receiving much by way of CEO. I mean, people that, you know, landscape, you know, lawn care landscaping companies at basis, right? But a large portion is going to fall into this level two. And level two is going to be effectively the same things that NIST 800 You have to show demonstrably proof that you have implemented these 110 controls. You have to you collect your performance statistics to show that they're being implemented, the documentation, you know, your access control policies, all the things that they're not just on paper, but that you're living. And this, this is going to be, to answer your question that you sort of mentioned earlier, how big is the government going to get just having all these assessment people come in? So not every government contracting officer is going to become a cybersecurity expert. They have created a classification of companies called Certified Third Party Assessment Organizations, C3PAOs. And those companies are being uh, trained and certified to go and start conducting the assessments on behalf of the government. Okay. So they're, the government's kind of outsourcing the responsibility to go check on the assessments of their other contractors. When does that start kicking in? And who vets um, them? Who vets those third-party yeah. companies? I mean, how do, how, how do you do that background check? Yeah, yeah. so they had, uh, they had put together an advisory board and they've set up some qualifications and, and such. And, you know, I, quite honestly, I don't know how they're, how they're doing that. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not projecting anything on people, but you are going to have a bunch of assessors that are going to have the keys to the kingdom on almost every government contract. Right. You know, where are all these vulnerabilities? And, and uh, you know, I, I, I want to elucidate on that point a little bit more with how this program is supposed to work. But you have the three levels. That second level is the 110 controls. The third level is for your, you know, your really top contractors. And they have to have the level three communications. Those are going to be the ones with the, secret top secret information they're building the uh, you know the 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 material that's going to be used in the defense department right and they have to have a series of enhanced controls probably going to be derived from the uh 800 document which is a corollary to 171 it goes over and above well 
So you have these three levels, and then you have these three levels of assessments called basic, basic, medium, and high. And basic is a self-assessment. So we're back to the thing that was failing before, that a company can basically do a self-assessment, go into a, a, a portal called the Spurs portal, enter their point total. There is a mathematical formula that makes no sense to anybody, but I suppose it works. You get, you start out with a perfect score of 110. Every control is assigned some level of points. And if you don't have the control implemented, you lose the points. So the score range is 110 to negative 203. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, you, you just sort of have to argue about the implementation of each control. So if you have a basic self-assessment requirement in your contracts, you get to do the same self-assessment, report over to Spurs, hey, that's where we are. But if you have a medium assessment, that involves someone enabled by the government coming in, taking a look at your basic assessment, but checking on your self-assessment to make sure that you're actually doing the stuff that you said that you're doing, that the policies are in place, the processes are in place, the data's there. Well, that means that anyone that thought they could get away with a basic assessment probably didn't do that basic assessment right. So your basic assessment may not be worth the paper that you certified on. I mean, you might as well say, um, excuse Epstein from class today, signed Epstein's mother, <laughs> if you haven't done this the right way. Yeah, you, you, these days you have to clarify which Epstein. We're talking, we're talking about Juan Epstein from Welcome Back, Carter, not Michael Epstein from Epstein Island. Uh, <laughs> Definitely uh, the family friendly Welcome Back, Carter. Right, right. Yeah, you know, which uh, probably most of the audience is uh, too young to be aware. But anyway, Epstein would come in with with uh, notes excusing him from things signed Epstein's mom. Literally, he would sign Epstein's mom. He wouldn't even try to uh, f- forge the name. I am. I, I feel like we're like in a scary one to a DefCon two, DefCon one type equivalent for this. Um, and I, but I think I'm starting to figure out where the lawyer comes in. So, uh, you know, obviously the internal regulatory function for the government is similar to what your corporate bigger company institutional clients or governmental clients may want, that you advise them what they need to do to be compliant, what they need to do internally and or to police their vendors and contractors. And for your contractor clients, your private industry clients, if they get a score, uh, that's closer to negative 203 rather than 110, you probably consult with them on how, what they need to do and, and how to get their score up higher so that they can uh, qualify for better contracts. Yes, that, that's right. And there's one more thing. Everything that you just said is correct. And there's one more thing. In 7020, you are, so you, you do your basic assessment, but you're ordered to have the medium assessment. That involves having one of these outside organizations talking to you about what they actually found. Mm-hmm. In 7020, a company is given 14 days to rebut the findings of the assessment organization. So if you thought you had the 110 and they come back with the, you had the minus 203, <laughs> okay, the, or somewhere in between. Sure. Lawyer, you got 77. Let's, let's not call them complete Fred Flintstones. Right, but the lawyer can write up the appeal saying 
the outside organization made a mistake. This is right. why our clients are actually implemented. And that's what lawyers do best. They take the documentation, they take the standard, and they tell you why this documentation actually supports the standard. Give us our improved score. Okay. And that's why I have been trying to tell people, get your lawyers involved a whole lot earlier because the lawyer is going to be your worst enemy at the outset saying, no, this, this isn't tight enough. You're going to need more documentation. You're going to have to tighten this up. They're going to tell you the hard things. But if they also know what you're doing, then if the government tells you the hard things, at least your lawyer is well prepared to say, I can explain why each and every control that they gave you the demerits for actually was implemented, and you can argue your way to higher score. Yeah, and at and the at the risk of, uh, I'm sorry, finish up. Sorry. No, and that's a critical thing for the lawyers to not just make sure that you're compliant with the contracts, but that when your contract is dependent upon cybersecurity, your lawyer's been involved so they can argue your way back into the good graces of the government. And at the risk of violating my own disclaimer at the beginning of the show, I can say with with almost 100% certainty that almost always, I qualify with almost always, the price tag for getting the lawyer involved before it becomes a problem, no matter how high, is always a lot less than after there's a problem. Yes, in two ways. The cost outlay for the lawyer to go back and make sure that things are being done right rather than going back and relearning it. But also you get the lawyer involved first, presumably you're not losing that contract or you're not losing the ability to bid on that contract. If you get the lawyer involved when it's too late, now you're playing from behind. You might not have that contract anymore. You might get kicked off the contract. You might have to face some, some damages, um, especially if there's been a breach. And now you're looking at having to do all the spending plus the revenue is not attached to it, potentially. Plus your insurance premiums are going to go sky high uh, and or uh, you can theoretically anyway expand the universe of clients that you can now appeal to because uh, you meet those standards, whether it's a different government agency or private sector or whatever you're permitted to do if there's uh, not non-competes. Um, so that's pretty cool. Um, I, you know, one of my little fascinations is cryptocurrency. We mentioned that you have some experience with that and blockchain. And I have to tell you, the more I learn about cryptocurrency, the, the less I understand of it or the more I understand of it and what I understand I don't like. And that is like, it feels like it's, if you agree to live your life in virtual reality in a self-imposed matrix, that that money will be good there and nowhere else there. And if you accept that, you're going to be really happy with it. Um, and, and that's my understanding of the only utility of cryptocurrency that uh, one day we're all going to be living uh, more in the internet than we already are. Um, and I've been told by experts that actually cryptocurrency is the worst thing for criminals to use because everything can be tra- uh, tracked by the blockchain to the, uh, account holder or account holders and it's it's completely traceable it's 74 percent more traceable than than regular transactions uh tell me where i'm right or wrong about any of that stuff i think you're right about a lot of it um and i'm going to go through point by point so my first exposure to cryptocurrency was actually in uh the winter of 2012 
And if I would have bought Bitcoin back then, uh, I would have been Skyping in for my private island, right? <laughs> um, but unfortunately, I, I didn't. But I'll tell you why I did. Um, when Bitcoin first really came to my attention, it was because it was the currency of choice on the digital Silk Road, which basically was the place to go buy guns and go buy black tar heroin. And it didn't seem to have a lot of utility for my life not being a black tar heroin purchaser or distributor. Right? Allegedly, and, yeah. Right, well, you know, you just have to put that out there for your listeners. Of course. But what you also saw coming a little bit later was like Mount Gox was happening and the value of Bitcoin fell to zero. You're looking at that the original stores that were accepting these curiosities for Bitcoin, you know, the guy that bought the, you know, most expensive pizza in the world. There was a, I used to live in Richmond. There was a little coffee shop near my, near my house that uh, was accepting Bitcoin for coffee. Well, if anyone actually bought coffee with Bitcoin, they're probably crying every day of their life, right? <laughs> uh, back then. So, you know, you look at, you look at cryptocurrency as, is it a security? Is it a currency? Is it a store of wealth? Right, is a commodity, and it's yes to all those, and therefore it's not all of those. And so, you know, if the whole purpose of buying it is to hold it as everybody else buys it, okay, then you're just never going to sell it, but you're never getting any utility out of it. It's just paper wealth that's not even on paper. It's paper wealth that's digital. So it doesn't have a lot of utility until it becomes used as a regular medium of exchange. Well, then it's investment, then it's a security. And if it's a security, well, no one ever walks in to go get a chicken sandwich and says, I will trade you one share of, one share of Exxon for a chicken nugget trip. Right. right? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> so, you know, you get these kind of confused things. Um, as to your point on the criminals, though, that's kind of, that's truly a yes or no. The blockchain does put everything out there. The colonial pipeline hackers had their cryptocurrency clawed back from them. A lot of it was recovered, right? Right. But the thing that it does is there's that moment in time when the government can freeze assets, right? You know, the, the, the dollars, you know, the, the currency passes through the servers in New York. There's a freeze order on it. It hits and boom, you, those assets are frozen. I don't really know the ability to freeze Bitcoin. You know, so if you're a criminal and you don't have the ability to pass through, uh, you know, currency dollar denominated through, you know, American channels because it can get hit with a freeze order, you know, you have to pass it through on something. And if you're not going to do the, the bag drop, then, you know, Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency still makes a lot of sense. But, you know, you have to be able to liquidate it. And just like anything else, it has to be done on favorable terms, right? You don't want your right. ransom money to be subject to the whims of the marketplace for very long. And where are, where can somebody liquidate it? Uh, 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 <laughs> this is going to sound like a weird question, but where would a criminal go hypothetically? I don't have any Bitcoin and I'm not doing any ransomware. I wouldn't even know how. That's amazing. I can even put out a podcast, but where? Where would you try to liquidate? I mean, you can't just go on the open Bitcoin market and try to sell it, or, or can you? Or, or like, do you go to El Salvador and just try to unload it all there? Yeah, well, you can. Man, El Salvador is a great point because they have 
try to get that digital currency going, and they timed it exactly wrong, as all right. investors do. Right. But that, that's a, that's a really good point. And uh, you know, so so the the theory is that it's a twenty four seven market, so it's always available to be liquidated, and you can go from anywhere. The the in twenty seventeen, because uh, you know, as you mentioned, when I was in the White House, we were looking at you know the use of cryptocurrency to you know get money from the sales of the fentanyl and the fentanyl lays heroin back out of the country. And so I started following that market. And the reason for the spike at that time was apparently because there were going to be uh, currency and capital export controls being imposed in China by the Chinese government. And so a lot of Chinese people were buying up Bitcoin because they could go cash it out from anywhere else. Right. And so that is sort of the point is that it's a way there. You just have your digital wallet that exists in space. And wherever you are, that's where your Bitcoin is. And uh, you can just download it there. And, you know, I guess, I guess exchange it in the local currency, but it does take a, it does take a seller and it does take a buyer to make a market. When I, I was always skeptical, skeptical about uh, cryptocurrency. Uh, but when I completely lost faith in it was when, you know, ev- everyone's favorite stooge now, uh, billionaire, trillionaire stooge, depending on what day it is, Elon Musk, when he stopped accepting Bitcoin for, uh, for Teslas. Um, because I thought the one guy who might need electronic currency forever would be the guy who's going to try to take over Mars or Ganymede or Io or Europa or the moon, you know, outside the, the outside the purviews of the laws of earth and man, um, which is one of the things that got me on this journey. But once he gave up on Bitcoin, I'm like, well, now he needs real money, which, you know, law professors and people in the uh, space law industry tell me they call that hooks. You know, whoever the player is, that, they, that there's enough hooks to keep them uh, to terra firma for their business and their assets. Um, and, you know, and then I remembered that and I'm like, well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But when he sort of gave up on it as the currency where he could use, well, interstellar or at least intrastellar wise, um, I, I knew that there was something wrong with it. Yeah, you know, that, that's that's an interesting point on, uh, on Musk. I, I actually... I actually think the world of him, uh, for, for the most part, I do find him be basically ahead of, it, of his time, but there's always that ability to use your cult following to enrich yourself, right? Uh, and that's true in the entertainment industry. That's true of almost anything. And I just find that cryptocurrency became particularly susceptible to the pump and dump schemes. That, you know, one whale, to use the terminology, one whale could come in and get a good base and a coin and, and not exactly corner the market, but to have a substantial position, which did two things. Number one, it allowed it to start being bit up, creating a self-fulfilling prophecy that this was going to the moon to use a terminology. And then the other thing they could do is to say things like, Hey, you can pay me in my coin of choice for the merchandise I'm selling, whether it's a Tesla or the flamethrowers that he was selling for, uh, you know, the boring company, right? Mm-hmm. And then at that point in time, and I'm building to a, a different point than you think you're making, but you're creating the utility case for the coin, which makes a lot of sense. But you're also um, creating paper wealth 
in the currency of choice that you're issuing, right? Because you, you have to report back your, your balance sheet to the SEC. You have to report these to the, to the IRS and there's always the conversion, right? So you're always coming back to the dollar denomination anyways. So the best thing that you can do is not hold Dogecoin forever, but to get the price of Dogecoin to be bid up in dollars so much that you can start liquidating your Dogecoin back down and make a nice return on it. Well, someone has to be holding the bag and, and Elon's not putting out the memo. I'm no longer accepting Dogecoin. Dogecoin's no longer my favorite thing. He needs people to start, you know, buying high so he can sell high in order for him to run it all the way back down, leaving someone else to hold that. And so as much as there's utility in it, you know, once the IRS says you have to pay taxes on your gains, well, how do you pay it? They don't, the IRS doesn't accept Bitcoin to pay your Bitcoin. Right. Fair point. Always, you know, there's always the forcing of liquidation. I mean, this is why on a personal level, I'm so against the wealth tax. Because once you enforce selling of something that is has a dollar-denominated value but isn't readily liquid in dollars, you're creating a forced market effect that is going to cascade losses down on other people. Well, yeah, you could you create deflation for vehicles, art, housing, <laughs> you know, all, all, all sorts of things. Yeah, uh, we'll just use Elon as the uh, as the example when he sells his Tesla shares to make up for the wealth tax or whatever. Then everyone else is bearing a bit of that loss because he's pushing the price of it down, and on paper, all these other people are losing. And that's the problem with cryptocurrency is that it always has to be liquidated into a currency in ways. And so someone's always going to get left holding a bag. And I just don't like the idea that there's a market for bag holders. I am also against the wealth tax uh, for one. You know, I I understand that a lot of people feel that that there's rich folks and corporations that are not being taxed adequately and uh, fairly. And there's I'm sure there's some truth to that. But the person that convinced me and and they weren't talking about this point, but I think the the correlation is pretty obvious. Actually, was a fairly I would say left center podcaster. Or I'm not sure if he's even in the business anymore, but his name is Mike Pesca, and he had a show called The Gist. And this is a few years old, so the data is uh, you know probably a, a bit dated with the numbers. But at the time, he said that the 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 top one percent or the top ten percent, whatever it was, and that's a pretty big range, but. The people who were the wealthiest in America, who, who, who the, the their total wealth was something like three point two trillion dollars, which is a lot of money. But if you confiscated one hundred percent of their wealth, it would pay for basically like four or five months of what was then Bernie Sanders' plan for national health care. And this is not a discussion on health care, but that that's basically nothing. Of course, if you confiscated all of their wealth, you would also you know. All their businesses would shut down. The markets would crash. I mean, there'd be enormous cascading effects. And this, this is, of course, a you know, a, a intellectual, academic uh, exercise. But it just wasn't worth it from any standpoint because even if you got a hundred percent of the wealth, it it wouldn't. It would just be a drop in the bucket of uh, the problem. And and you know, the, unfortunately, the, the the truth of the matter is as always is always is 
you need the 95 or 98 percent to to chip in even a little because that's going to be more than taking a lot from the you know the one to five percent and that it's just it's just math yeah and, and i'm sorry for for taking that in in the <coughs> you know, that that really was you know the thing with crypto is that the markets were just moving units like directionally right you know there was a time when no one was selling everyone was just holding because it was getting bigger and bigger now no one's buying and those losses that are cascading you know it, that can just get so manipulated by yeah, one sure. big whale and and just can't do that with reserve currencies you can't do that stuff so i'm actually not against crypto in any way shape or form it, it doesn't isn't something that uh, worked for for me but i could see it working for businesses i i could certainly see it and i'll tell you tell you one way in which i could see it happening is that you know we're moving to the cashless society and there always has to be something that people are doing to try to avoid taxes, right? Sure. And I, you can start seeing people saying, I'm going to try to accept my payment in crypto or, you know, a barter because uh, it's just different than, um, you know, accepting payment in the coin of the realm. But uh, I think the IRS is trying to get ahead of yeah, no, I had a conversation with a, a friend of mine, actually, where the show airs on one of uh, his networks. And I said, as soon as the IRS figures out a way to tax this, and they will, it's not going to be worth much more than any other stock, you know, if even that. Uh, and I stand by it, and you just sort of backed it up. But on the cryptocurrency theme, but more in terms of cybersecurity, I would imagine cryptocurrency needs to employ major cybersecurity. You have an entire system of financing and, and economic exchange um, that's based on a blockchain, which is just a, an, an enormous amount of computers. Apparently, there's like 13 stories of them in Kazakhstan. And you've got you know, basically all these places with giant computers keeping track of this stuff. And that, that seems like, you know, there, there would need to be you know, basically uh, fortress of solitude-like force fields around these things. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, as an individual, you got the FDIC, right? And if someone goes in and commits a bank robbery, you're still good for a quarter million dollars, right? Mm -hmm. And if someone, you know, gets your debit card information on a point of sale transaction, the bank's going to refund you the money that you lost and they're going to get you a new card, right? How do you do the same thing? With Bitcoin, someone goes in and hacks the blockchain, which I, I know is going to be extremely hard. But say that someone, what they really do is they they hack your Bitcoin wallet. Mm -hmm. You know, you're sophisticated enough to have Bitcoin, but for some reason you secured it with your birthday right. as your password, right? Well, there's no one to go to in order to make the claim. You know, there's just no resource there. And so it, it is going to need a lot of cybersecurity, and that's going to be more at the individual level and at the one immutable ledger level, because then you really worry about the integrity of the whole system. If you can find a way to start moving Bitcoin around without using the market that they've established, there is very limited recourse. Now, maybe you have a listener that says, hey, that guy's wrong. This is the recourse. I'd be interested in knowing that, but I, I just don't know who you appeal to in order to try to get it back. And I, I don't either. given the value of it, uh, you know, you're looking at an enormous loss on even a small coin holding. Did you ever watch the show The Americans? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the the last couple of seasons, the uh, main male character, what was his name, Jonathan Reese Myers, whatever, he 
basically seduced the babysitter or the daughter of a CIA agent. Um, and uh, she later on went on to play Ruth on Ozark, and so everyone knows who she is now. Uh, and she played, um, oh God, inventing Anna. She was she was Anna. So everyone knows the actress. Um, anyway, you know, imagine that somebody targets the babysitter of important people. Everyone's important, but people that hold these kinds of positions and, and information. And there's a pretty good chance that their home alarm code or their computer code is the same security code for everything else. And you and you give it to the babysitter because, well, they've got to come in and out of the house. They've got to let the pizza guy in. Um, you know, maybe they want to use the Internet or they want to use your your Alexa, your Sling TV. And, you know, maybe if not the most careful fellow, you know, you, you, you know, you, you go through a hundred of these seductions and you actually find a key there. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, and, and all of a sudden everyone's got this giant pool of information from whomever, whatever agency company it is. And so this is, this is, you know, if the Americans TV show could, could come up with it, then, uh, I'm sure real, uh, bad yeah, actors could. There's a term for that. It's uh, social engineering. You know, it's the ability that you know you can get to know someone and know what their dog's name is, and you know maybe that's the password. You can guess the the birth date, mm-hmm. and it, it's a fairly fairly effective way of going about getting this information because most people put their password to something that they'll remember, right? Right. And you know, it's easy to remember what your dog's name is, mm-hmm. type of thing, and. Uh, and there is, just like with anything else that we were talking about from the beginning, there is a weakest link. You don't target the strongest link. You target the weakest link in it right. and then work your way up the chain. And so, I mean, of course, that's a, you know, a fictitious TV show. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, there's plenty of stories where, you know, I mean, I, I can actually tell you in my computer crime prosecutions the type of people that were targeted by and, and susceptible to, to fraud. And that actually did fall for it. And they were generally um, older, less sophisticated, also lonelier. You know, maybe they were widowed. Maybe they just never got married, but, you know, no no kids around. And they really wanted to believe, wanted right. to believe that the person taking an interest in them was taking a gen- genuine interest. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars going out to people, um, a, a neighbor of the home where I grew up, um, sued their bank because I think they sent $4.3 million out, uh, from their transactions. Another widowed person that didn't quite understand what the scam was went to the bank. The bank never asked any questions, brought a pretty novel lawsuit to try to recover that money back. And again, it's just a little combination of ignorance and a little bit of wanting to believe. And that's a very powerful psychological um, combination. Yeah. And it leads people to do irrational things that really hurt them. Yeah, it's it's not just uh, immigration uh, fraud any longer. Um, I want to ask you something about satellites because you mentioned that you had some experience with that. And how, how can satellites be protected? I mean, so much information goes up to satellites, it comes down from satellites and is transmitted and uh, you know, and, and then conversely, the, the cloud, though, despite its name, is actually more like the underworld. Um, how, how are, how are, how is, so how is heaven and hell protected? How are the satellites protected? And, and how is the hell that's known as the underground cloud, uh, protected? Uh, 
I think that the most important thing is the encryption. That uh, it, it, data is always in one of two states. It's data in transit or data at rest. Okay. Um, data in transit is going from machine to machine. Data at rest is something being stored at the machine. Uh, data is most vulnerable when it's in transit. Now, I know that things can move at the speed of light, but, you know, there's a extended period of time that data is vulnerable whenever it's being transmitted from the ground to, to the satellite or vice versa. And so the importance of having a very, very strong encryption on that data is immeasurably important. And then, of course, the data at rest that anything that's being collected and held before it becomes first communications or, you know, if it's constant streaming information, that uh, that has to be encrypted too. So I, I think that uh, having the, the strongest possible forms of encryption on that information is possible. Um, and data at rest uh, needs to be encrypted at, at almost anything. Data sitting in an email server should be encrypted, you know, by the server, but then, you know, you can have the attachments within the emails themselves that are also, you know, have an encryption key on it. That would be laborious for the day-to-day practice of law. Sure. But when you're getting something that is extremely important sent over, it does make sense to have an encryption key on the uh, on the data, or at least password protect the the data to make sure that happens. So with with the satellite communications, is you know, it's what information are they communicating, both the substance of it and then the metadata. You know, where are we right now? Where is that satellite in orbit? You know, what's it picking up? Um, you know, both of those pieces of data are going to need to be encrypted and, uh, you know, to the best of the ability, not uh, being allowed to be seen whenever it's in transmission. Last question, and maybe it's trite, maybe it's not. How afraid should we be of TikTok? That's a great question. And uh, there's a friend of mine, uh, an internet friend of mine who has a tremendous podcast about space uh, called Dude, Where's My Jetpack or, or something like that. I've heard of it. Yes, uh, very good. And uh, and we were actually talking a little bit about uh, about TikTok and, you know, I, not to talk about her, but I would plug her uh, podcast. But uh, it, it brought my attention to what was going on in 60 Minutes. So I wasn't in the White House at the time that uh, that we banned TikTok, but I was entirely in support because I think that it does two things. And I don't know which one you should be more scared of. The number one thing is that it really is acting as the best espionage tool that the Chinese Ministry of State and PLA could ever have into American. It can get the facial recognition of basically everybody. You get the data points plotted on where their face is. You're building up. They're giving you their names. They're giving you their location data. You can start building dossiers on literally anybody that uses that. And China has such advanced artificial intelligence programs. I mean, they're, they're, they have such interesting, I'm going to take a diversion, but I'm going to get back to the TikTok thing. China uses AI in so many ways. Do you know that in China, they will set interest rates that they can lend out based in part upon how much battery you had left on your phone at the time that you created your application with the thinking that if you are someone that 
constantly keeps a high charge, you're probably a good risk. And someone that's always willing to let that thing run down to zero, you might be a real risk. Now, it's just one factor in their algorithm, but there's nothing that they see as too small of a data point to create a risk computation on in that scenario, right? It's very Black so, Mirror meets the show The Capture. Yeah. So, so if you look at TikTok, as long as they're able to actually store all that data, I mean, geolocation data is giving a pretty good amount of where is someone moving to and what are their normal places? What's their universe? Where are they always going to? You know, and it's, it's building out the map of connections of who's actually talking to them. You know, the, the, you know, college kid that's, uh, doing their, their dance. Well, who are the other three kids that are more or less always in the videos? Where do they live? And you can start building out that map of connections. You know, you could play six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but with a computer through TikTok, right? Mm-hmm. But then, you know, you also just look at, so that that's dangerous, you know, the complete map of American life. But the really dangerous thing to me is something that I, I'm, I'm just going to steal from the 60 Minutes interview, that um, the Chinese version of TikTok that they use in China is mostly an educational, aspirational tool. The American version is the exact opposite. Right. Right. I mean, it's basically how do I waste my life? How do I chase after the silliest instantaneous moments of social cloud at the expense of everything else? Right. Um, and maybe that's a, a little bit overblown, but I'm starting to think not by much. Okay. And what the interviewee said was that the most common thing that a Chinese kid wants to grow up to be is an astronaut. Whereas the most prominent thing that an American kid wants to grow up now is being an influencer. They're all chasing the cloud. Right. Rather than studying hard, rather than doing all the traditional ways of American advancement, they're just going to dance their way to glory or whatever it is. You know, I, I don't have TikTok. I've never had TikTok. I've maybe seen like 10 TikTok videos in my life. Right. I just am not a consumer of it. Right. But I think that between the, the intelligence value and just the effect that it's having on younger people in America that this is really where to invest your time. It's a dangerous combination. And so I'd be very happy if Apple just pulled it out of the Apple store and some American company put out something that was less insidious on the intelligence thing. And maybe, you know, maybe you could just convince kids like it's okay to read a book. It's okay to go outside. No one really needs to see your dance moves, you know. I'm into that. Uh, yeah. I, people ask me about TikTok. I always say, I don't use Chinese spyware. And, and, and I mean that, you know, 87% with certainty, 13% that maybe I'm being a little cheeky. Um, but, um, now I'm convinced that I'm, I've always been doing the right thing. I'm a patriot. I say, I use American spyware. I know that Apple knows what, what I shop and what I'm looking for. And I know that when I talk to someone about, you know, Greek yogurt, all of a sudden I'm going to see, you know, the, uh, Chobani ads on Facebook. I, you know, that's just, that's just part of life. It's magical that way. Um, and I know they're listening, but at least I know it's because they're trying to sell me shit, not, not trying to yeah. take. It, uh, it's a benign spying rather than a malicious spying. It makes yeah. you feel so much better. Right? right. I mean, I hope so anyway. Um, I, 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 you know, I figured that mostly that's what businesses want is just for you to spend money. Um, you know, and they want you to have money so that you can continue to spend money. Otherwise the cycle, otherwise the wheel is broken. So anyway, I feel like we could talk about this 
forever and we would never lose um, topics or uh, tangents to go on. So I'm going to ask you the catch-all question that I ask everyone, and it's okay if the answer is no. But the question I ask is, what should I have asked you or what do people need to know that was not imparted during the course of this podcast? That, that's a good question. That's a fair self-assessment question. I'll give you a five-star review as an interviewer. Thank uh, you, sir. We'll keep it out of a five, five scale. It's not out of a 10 scale. Excellent. Um, Thank but, you. Uh, but, you know, I, I sort of, I like your initial question, Nod, that you got to the shared responsibility. I remember being in a restaurant as a kid when they had this uh, old war poster with a, with a guy in the water and his hand is up, but he's sinking. And there's a sinking ship in the background that said, someone talk. And, uh, you know, what was true then in the World War II posters is true now. You do have some responsibility to protect yourself. You have a lot of responsibility to protect yourself. So maybe a good question is, can you repeat the, you know, basic ways that you should really start protecting yourself? But then, you know, the next question is really, what do I have to do to protect others? You know, where does my responsibility continue over there to you? Because once I'm being entrusted with some data from you, I, I do owe it to you to protect you. And uh, so a good question is, how, how do you validate that other people are doing what they say? And, uh, you know, that, that's much harder, but it's worth knowing what people's obligations are to you. So I thought you got to that question. So by and large, I, I think you've covered everything. Excellent. Well, that's, that's great. Probably enough anyway for a podcast. Okay. So... Chip, if people where want to find you in your law practice and in your other business ventures or in any other way, how would they find you and in which different, for the various different hats that you wear that you want to share? Uh, sure. I, I appreciate that. Uh, I do have a LinkedIn page. Uh, you can find me under my professional name of Lawrence Muir, M-U-I-R. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a Twitter handle, Lawrence Muir One. Uh, it's not very entertaining Twitter content, mostly complaining about sports outcomes. That's our but, smoke uh, alarm, folks. Don't worry. It happens every time somebody cooks here. Sorry. No, it, it's good that my podcast was fired. This is my first one. so that, That's right. You've gone over time. It's the alarm. <laughs> but I'm, I'm happy to, uh, if any of your listeners want to reach out, I'm always happy to engage with people. And I appreciate you letting me plug out a contact. Excellent. And of course, you work for Dunlop, Bennett, and Lubbock, so he can be reached there at the website or at the firm's main line. Um, and are your other ventures, are they for the public or are they, you know, more, you know? Yeah, they're, they're for the public. They're, uh, my, my software can be used for uh, anyone that has a supply chain of cybersecurity risk, anyone that has compliance uh, standards. Uh, it's a, both a GRC tool and a security and supply chain risk management tool. So, uh, it's really geared towards prime, co- prime contractors, banks, insurance companies, anyone that really needs to enforce some contract provisions or has multiple networks to monitor. Well, so happy to talk with anybody. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And Chip, we're probably going to talk to you again about some other things. That The other thing we talked about offline was really, really fascinating. I'm sure we can extrapolate that into another show. Uh, if you're amenable and you indicate that you were ahead of time, and since you said you're going to give me five stars as a reviewer, I, I, you know, I, I imagine I didn't screw the pooch too much on this one. So, uh, folks, you're probably going to hear from Chip again uh, as a repeat guest, and we'll add to our ever-growing family of repeat guests on these family of shows, which is a source of great pride for me. Um, and I thank you so much for coming on. 
And folks, I thank you for listening. Uh, do what Chip does. Give us a five-star review. Give us a, a rating. Um, write a nice review. And But more than anything else, tell your friends, professional or otherwise, between Garden of Doom and Garden Views, we have pretty much everything covered. And if you don't think we have something covered that you want covered, let me know. I love to hear from people, uh, even hate mail. Uh, hate mail just lets me know that, uh, you know, you're listening um, until it gets too hateful. And I haven't had that yet, so we'll, we'll see. Then I get then I sick Chip on you, and you don't want that. All right. Thanks, Chip. Thank you, Jeff. I enjoyed being on your show. and looking forward to uh, your future podcast, too. Uh, we're thrilled to have you. Thank you so much. And, folks, we will hear from you next time on Garden News. I come from the days of the Pirate Bay When we would torrent and leash all day My mom would say, okay, be safe And then I'd hear the 56K Soon may the ISP come To bring us news of copyright scum One day when downloading is done We'll take a leave and go Where any song or movie was free The MP3s and MKVs But I always kept clear of the EXEs Soon may the ISP come To bring us news of copyright scum One day when downloading is done We'll take our leave and go Copyright scum. One day, one downloading is done. We'll take our leave and.